Welcome to New St. Peter's. We're glad to have you here. My name is Colin Peters, and I work here. Not here, but here. Uh, This morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been in the book of Hebrews for a number of weeks. I guess you could actually say a number of months now, really. And Hebrews 11 this morning again, so we're, we're kind of pausing in Hebrews 11 because it's one of those really pivotal chapters in Scripture, I think and in Hebrews in particular. And so we're pausing to kind of take our time through this chapter. And so this morning, we're really just going to read three verses, well, five, but we're going to focus on three verses here. And last week, we looked at a few verses that give us the account of Abraham, the very well-known and famous among Christians account of Abraham and his faith and how he set his gaze upon God who calls his people and who fulfills his promises and who provides exactly what he requires of his people. And the writer through Abraham, this should be no surprise to us, really, the writer through Abraham so covered, so thoroughly covered the life of gospel faith that he now portrays, I think, the death of gospel faith with these next three verses. And so, in just three sentences, the writer of Hebrews, actually, in these three verses, sweeps through the second half of the book of Genesis. He goes through 25 chapters of the book of Genesis in three sentences, and just, I mean, briefly is not even the word for it, just so quickly sweeps through to show that the faith of Abraham carried right on through his son and his grandson and his great-grandson right on to their very deaths. And so, young theologians, you young Christians, as you listen to these verses, as you pay attention to the sermon and think through some of these things together with us, you young ones can draw a picture. I would really be curious to see you draw a picture. There's room for you on page 6 of your bulletin under the Scripture passage to draw a picture. And this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but I don't mean it to be morbid. Draw a picture of death. But, here's the little caveat, a picture of death with the light of gospel faith shining on it. Now, if you're thinking, I'm going to draw a picture of the grim reaper with his dark robe and the big Sith sickle or whatever the thing, you're on the wrong track. That's not what I'm after. But draw a picture of death with the light of gospel faith shining on it. This is what this writer gives to us here. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1 and 2, and then verses 20 to 22. He writes this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning His bones. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Would you grant to us your spirit? Enable us to see and to believe. Enable us to grow in faith and to recognize that the gospel faith that you grant to us by your grace, by your mercy in Jesus, not only changes our life, but it shapes the very death that we die. Would you give us faith to believe that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
the most valuable class that I took in seminary was the class that I least liked to attend. It was valuable because it was a class that forced me as a seminary student into real-life situations with actual people. Now, I know that sounds odd, but seminary students, and some of you are seminary students, seminary students have uh, the opportunity to kind of sit in class with professors and, and pontificate and think deeply, and that's important to do on theological matters and such. And yet sometimes that takes us out of real life. And so this class actually forced us into real life with real-life situations with people in distress. I didn't like to attend it, not because of the people, but because it was in a hospital. I don't like hospitals. Does anybody like hospitals who's not a doctor or a nurse? Maybe doctors and nurses don't like them even more than the rest of us. But, you know, I, I, feel, I just feel like I'm going to get lost in a hospital. I mean, hospitals never make sense in the way the halls go. And if you're walking through one and you're not wearing a doctor's garb, you kind of feel out of place. Like, I always kind of expect for a nurse to pull me aside and scold me for something, and I don't even know what it's going to be. I don't really like hospitals, so I didn't like to go to this class. It was an introduction to hospital chaplaincy, and a friend of mine had recommended it, saying it was a really valuable class, and it was. We would meet one time each week for three hours at the hospital across the highway from the seminary, and the hospital chaplain was the instructor for the class. We'd spend an hour in class discussion over readings that we were doing, and then for the next two hours, he would send us out. There were only five of us. He would send us out into the hospital, each to a different floor, and say, go and visit patients. And that was kind of the extent of his instruction. Basically, we were going to make cold calls on patients as chaplains in the hospital. And that was really awkward. I mean, maybe you've been a patient in the hospital before, and... You're just sort of there in this sort of exposed sort of situation with a hospital gown on and maybe, you know, maybe just a hospital gown on, maybe some tubes up your nose or something like that. And somebody, stranger, comes in with a Bible in hand and says, hello, I'm the hospital chaplain today. Can I come in to visit? So what's up with the tubes up your nose? It's just kind of awkward. You don't really know where to begin with those. One of the requirements of this class was that you had to spend one night on call at the hospital as the chaplain, should any emergency sort of situation arise. And so on my night on call, I made some visits around the evening and spoke to some people, and and that was interesting. And then I went down to the little quarters, you know, about midnight, the little chaplain's quarters, just to to kind of study and sleep a little bit and, and wait by the phone and didn't really expect a phone call or really any emergencies, you know, maybe something Uh, some surgery or something like that. But I did get a call. About 3 o'clock in the morning, the phone called, and a nurse said, Are you the chaplain? Yes, I am. I need you to come up to the fifth floor. A man has died, and his wife has been called. She's on her way, and I need for you to meet her at the elevator. I reluctantly got up, went up to the fifth floor, and waited in the lobby until the elevator opened, and a woman I had never met came out. I knew who she was. It was the most awkward introduction of my life. Death is such an awkward thing. It's, it's really a taboo topic in our culture, in our world. In our little congregation here, New St. Peter's, over the past 10 years or so, we've had about a half a dozen deaths or so in or around our congregation. Some of them were expected, some of them were not. 
And some of you still acutely feel the pain of some of those deaths. I know, I know that you do. There are more deaths to come for us. Every one of us has a 100% chance of facing it, don't we? Every one of us is going to, to get to that point sooner or later. And we assume that the older that we are, the closer we are to death. We assume that. And sure, in some sense, that's true, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. Death was potentially near to these Hebrew Christians to whom the writer was sending this written sermon. It was potentially near to them, and they knew it because of the persecution that was coming upon them in the Roman world at the time. And he needed for them to know some things. They needed to know some things about gospel faith and the death that it shapes. And so he calls attention to three fathers of the faith at the moment of their deaths. What were they thinking in the moments before they died? What were they doing in the moments before they died? What were they believing in the moments before their eyes were shut, their lungs went flat, and their veins grew hard? The writer to the Hebrew Christians says to them essentially this. He says, just as gospel faith shapes the life that you live, as we saw in Abraham, so also it shapes the death that you die. Now, to be clear, Gospel faith does not die. But the one who claims it does eventually. And when death comes, will gospel faith win? That's the question he wants them to see here. The death of gospel faith maybe is even more remarkable than the life of gospel faith because in the face of death, one with such faith can find rest in his weakness. He can find rest in his weakness. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, three men whose stories occupy the second half of Genesis, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, three profoundly significant fathers of the faith following after Abraham, what do they have in common? What do these three men have in common? Do you know? Besides that they're in the same family, that's pretty obvious. They all were youngest brothers. They were, all, they were all the younger ones of the family. That should be odd to, to us if we know a little bit about the culture in which they lived. The oldest brothers were the, the esteemed ones in the culture. They were the ones who culturally received double the inheritance and all the respect and the responsibility of the family as the father passed things down. The oldest brothers were the ones who seemed... To matter, but from the very beginning, the gospel comes to the weak ones, doesn't it? We know that, and we see that in the unfolding of history. The gospel comes not to the older, stronger Cain, but to the younger, weaker Abel. The gospel comes not to the older, stronger Ishmael, but to the younger, weaker Isaac. The gospel comes not to the older, stronger Esau, but to the younger, weaker Jacob. And even among his 12 sons, Jacob had 12 sons. It's remarkable. Even among his 12 sons, it's his 11th one, Joseph, who is born to a woman who could just barely have kids. Joseph is the one that God uses to provide life for his family. And so what are these men's stories, briefly? They're stories of weakness. Isaac, 
You know, Abraham and Sarah were his parents. He was born to them as a result of God's promise to them. And in their old age, Sarah was barren already and had been for 90 years. Abraham was 99 years old when Sarah remarkably, miraculously became pregnant with Isaac. Before that, Sarah had given up on it. We saw it last week. She had given her servant to Abraham and said, Look, this is not going to work. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't have kids. So here, have my servant, have a child through my servant. Abraham did. That was not God's plan. And so Isaac was born, but just barely. I mean, just by the skin of their teeth, right? He was the younger brother, half-brother, as it were. And the gospel came to him, not because of his strength of status, but because Yahweh loved him. Jacob, what about Jacob? He was a twin, you know? He had a twin brother, Esau. He was born to Isaac and to Rebekah. And Rebekah also was barren, as had been Sarah. Esau was the one born first. And so he was the favored one of dad. It's what the culture said to do. But Rebekah had heard from the Lord otherwise. When she pleaded with God for her pregnancy, the Lord spoke to her and said to her, The older one, you'll have twins, and the older one will serve the younger one. She knew that was God's call upon these children. And in Genesis 27, you read the story of Isaac in his old age. He's, he's near death, and he calls his son Esau to come. And Esau, will you go out hunting as you do, strong man as you are, and bring me some fresh kill, some, some, some game that I may eat and then bless you? And, and the, the writer tells us that Isaac's eyes were dim. He could not see I think that Isaac was more than just physically blind. He was spiritually having trouble seeing things straight. He wanted to bless his oldest son because that's just what the culture did. And he wanted to do it by having his son go bring him something in exchange. Isaac was maybe, I don't know, maybe a little confused here. But Rebecca tricks him because she knew what the Lord had said. The older will serve the younger. She knew the younger one needed to receive the blessing first and show Jacob gets the greater blessing. What about Joseph? Joseph is Jacob's younger, well, 11th of 12 sons. Jacob's domestic life was really kind of strange. Maybe you know the story of this. Jacob grew up and, and had to flee from Esau, his, his furious older brother, after he had stolen the blessing from him. The Bible is full of great soap operas. And Jacob goes off and finds a relative, Laban, who has two daughters, and eventually he marries the daughter that he desires, after he has to marry the older daughter. just Nobody does this nowadays, okay? So he marries both of these women, and this, this sister's rivalry begins. One of them can have children, and she does. Leah has four, four boys, and Rachel doesn't have any. And so Rachel gives to Jacob her servants, and Jacob has children with her. And then there's this, this bizarre rivalry. Twelve boys result from this and even a girl. Joseph is the 11th one. And, and Jacob favored Joseph because he favored Joseph's mother. And he gave him a special robe of colors. And Joseph had dreams that got him into trouble eventually. And when he was 17 years old, his brothers sold him to gypsies to get rid of him. And off he goes to Egypt. All of them were the youngest ones, the ones who were born into weakness. But by faith, Isaac... When dying, blessed his sons. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed his grandsons, the Bible tells us, 
and he blessed the youngest one first. Wasn't supposed to do that. That's what he did. By faith, Joseph, when dying, blessed his brothers, as we heard moments ago in the reading of Scripture from the Old Testament. How can the weak one find strength to bless in the face of death? I mean, at the moment of death, and this is kind of speculation on my part, but I think this is about accurate. At the moment of death, what one thing in a worldly sense do you think probably really begins to come to mind? I would think regrets and weakness. I would think at the moment of death, you begin to think of the things that you wish had been different. We just moved out of our house this week, a house that we've lived in for seven years and we've really loved. And enjoyed, and many of you have been in our house and enjoyed it with us, and we really, really enjoyed that. A neighbor of ours wanted to buy it, and we were kind of thinking of a different arrangement of space for our family. And so we pulled the trigger on it, and we sold our house. And once it was done, it began to feel sort of like a death to me. I put that in quotes. Kind of like a death to me. Uh, One person, as we were talking about reasons for selling our house, said, you know, this other house that you found, we found another house, and we're going to get there eventually after we fix up some things. They said, this was my mother, she said, this other house that you found will be, will be better for accommodating teenage years. Now, she meant that as a, to be helpful, and it was, because it was right. But it was actually, to me, like a punch in the gut. Because what she was saying was, you don't have children anymore. You have preteens. You got eight more years This house will fit that better. I mean, to me, that was a death to me. And I began to feel these kind of regrets. And then I saw the the buyer. As the buyer was looking at our house, we were there, and and they're neighbors, we knew them. And he was out in our driveway, looking at our driveway. We got a basketball goal in the driveway, and there's some space there. And he was looking, and I said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking full-court basketball, aren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, I've wanted to do that. I've thought of that so many times. And I thought, you know, maybe when our kids are older, I'll do that. Now he's going to do it, and I'm not. You know, regrets. You think of those things, the things that I might have done differently if I could just do it again. Regrets come quickly at the moment of death. I'm sure they do. I know they will for me, and surely they will for you. They come quickly. But, it's you know, we see our weaknesses. But gospel faith makes us able to rest, actually, in our weakness. You know, the Lord spoke to Paul when he was struggling with his thorn in the flesh, whatever that weakness was. And what did God say to him? You know it. He said, my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And so, Paul says, he concludes, therefore, I'll boast gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why weakness? Why is it weakness upon which the power of Christ rests and in which we can rest at our death. Remember a few weeks ago we saw Cain and Abel. We saw the the difference between the two of them. And we saw that if you were to ask someone who is today like Cain, a legalist, ask them, are you a Christian? What would they say? They would say, well, of course I am. Look at my life. Look at the things that I do. Look at what I have to contribute. In other words, look at my strengths, is what they would say. But if you asked Abel, the one with gospel faith, are you a Christian, Abel? What would he say? He would say, yes. And I'm amazed 
I mean, despite my weaknesses, despite who I am, God has placed his love upon me. And I still don't understand why he's done that. But God, have mercy, he has. Grace upon grace. And that's the place of weakness, the position of weakness. And when he dies, he rests on it. Now, it's not just resting, though, in your weakness. In the face of death, one can also put hope in God's covenant. It's no small thing that these men, facing their deaths, spoke blessings over the next generation. That's what they did. It was somewhat of a custom. But Isaac and Jacob's blessings of their sons were more than, I think, just for posterity's sake. It was not that they were out to make themselves look good after they were gone. I don't think that's what it was because they had a greater faith than that. They had something else to which they were looking. They weren't concerned for that. And it was more than just formality or superstition or something like that because their own eternal destinies, and you have to realize they had to know this, their own eternal destinies depended on their family line. That's how significant the covenant was for them. They had to recognize that. If my son dies, the hope of the gospel dies. If my family line doesn't continue, I have no hope in this world or the next. Their very eternal destinies would depend on their family line. They knew the nature of God's covenant, which was to purchase back his people from the penalty of their sin. It's the nature of his covenant. And they had seen it. They knew of it. From Adam, what was the nature of the covenant to Adam? God said to him, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, Adam, your wife Eve, the mother of all the living, is going to give birth. And from your offspring will come one who will crush the head of that deceiving serpent. It's the covenant. And to Noah, what did God say? Build an ark. And when he finished, what did he say? Get in, Noah. Get in. And preserve the family from judgment. And then to Abraham, ultimately, what did he say? He said, Abraham, I'll make a great nation out of you. And through you, I will bless every family on earth. I'll I'll bless all the peoples of the earth through you, Abraham. They knew the nature of this covenant that they had received passed down through the family line. And now the son and the grandson and the great grandson, all of them in the face of death, can put their hope not in their own posterity, but in God's covenant. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course, helps us a little bit to understand covenant. What is God's covenant? It has a whole section on this, and it's really good. And it begins with this. I'll read you the first paragraph out of that from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures, that is, human beings, not animals, but human beings, although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, except by some, listen, except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Okay, what is a covenant? We had the new members class the other night. 
We talked about the covenant in some different sorts of ways. John did very helpfully. Here's another way to think of it. The covenant is God's condescending to us in our need. The covenant is God coming down because we can't go up. Apart from some voluntary condescension on His part, we could never know Him. And by His covenant, He has come. And so what are the blessings that Isaac and Jacob give? Isaac to Jacob, his son, unwittingly, not knowing who he's blessing, but knowing what he's blessing, says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Sounds like a very earthly, worldly sort of blessing. I think Isaac knew what he was saying, even if he didn't know who he was saying it to. He knew he was saying to the next generation, God will meet you. God will take care of you because God has promised in His covenant. Jacob, a generation later, blessed all 12 of his sons. He had a lot of work to do on that day. As his death approached, he blessed them all, and not the least his son Judah, to whom he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Poetic way of saying, A king will come down. To his son, blessing his son in light of the covenant, A king will come down, son, and he will reign. The scepter will not depart from him. You see, for these men, death was not the end. Death was not the end. It was a mile marker along the way to the better country which they anticipated, to the better country that they knew was coming because of God's covenant. After all, the writer's already told us, Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. In verse 13, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You know, there was a day when death was taken much more seriously among human society than it is today. Uh, Christians, you know, at one time really knew that they were strangers and exiles in a land not their own. And, and we know that. We hear that. We think that we believe that. We struggle to, to, to apprehend the truth of that. Nowadays, death is, well, it's sort of a Facebook quiz. You know, there's a, a quiz you can take online that will tell you exactly how many years you have to live. I took it. Don't worry, I got a long way to go. All you got to do is answer some questions. It's like 12 questions. It's like, what kind of hot drink do you prefer? What's your favorite meal? What's your favorite dessert? Do you like to meet people? Do you smoke anything? It's questions like that. There's just 12 of them. It's really pretty simple. And, we've kind of, in our, and it says it's scientific. You know, we've got our, our whole scientific mindset has boiled things down to such simplicity. And it, for, you know, for me, it said, well, you've got 83 years to live. You're going to be 83 years old when you die. So now I know. You know, it's easier to make light of death than it is to take it seriously. The, the fact of the, of the covenant is that God has come down. He has come with His covenant to redeem, to, to meet His people where they are, and to buy them back. One theologian explains it this way, death. He says, death, with terrible finality, disintegrates man as a person obliterating his faculties and frustrating his ambitions. Doesn't that sound awful? And then he says, It is especially in the case of those who are dying 
that faith, gospel faith, prevails. And in death, that that hope in things which are future and invisible shines more brightly. At the moment of death, look, you believe the gospel. If you're a Christian and you've proclaimed faith, you believe the gospel. But at the moment of death, you know, sometimes I, maybe you've thought of this too. You kind of wonder, if I could choose how to die, you know, maybe I could just die in my sleep and not even know it. Or I'd kind of rather have a prolonged death and just kind of know and have my family gathered around or, or whatever. You know, there are all kinds of ways. There are many ways you don't want to die, right? But, you know, in, in a sense, if, 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 I, if, I could, if I could choose my death, I'd want to know it was coming. Because I would want to, 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 to recognize the sense and the reality of the Spirit coming upon me. And more and more, and increasing my faith to believe, because, you know, I think it's so that at the moment of death, for one who has gospel faith, then your faith is stronger than ever, because it has to be. It has to be when you get to that point. Until then, it's almost trivial. Gospel faith means that in the face of death, you can put your hope in God's covenant. But it also means that you can hold on for future grace. This is, I think, the most intriguing part of this very short passage in Hebrews. Joseph, what does he do? Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and and he gave them directions concerning his bones. That's weird, people. I mean, that's weird. That's that's kind of the the crazy uncle thing to do. What's the deal with that? Okay, when I, after I die in a few years from now, here's what you're going to do with my bones. Look, uncle, I'm going to leave your bones alone. Joseph had instructions with his bones. From the age of 17, he'd been in Egypt. He'd been there a long time. He died at the age of 110. 93 years he'd been there. And, you know, the story of Joseph, he had in Egypt been a servant in a household and through false accusations had landed in prison for quite some time and God gave him dream interpreting ability, and through that he eventually became the governor of Egypt under Pharaoh and presided over that powerful country for seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. This was Joseph's job. And then his brothers came along with the rest of the world coming for food to Egypt, and Joseph was in charge and reconciled with his brothers. And at the end of Genesis, the very end of Genesis, the Old Testament reading that you heard moments ago, Joseph says to his brothers, look, I'm about to die. I mean, here's how you want it to be. I'm about to die. Now, here are my last words. And his last words are, brothers, listen, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he does, you shall carry up my bones. Now, I know that's strange. I know that's something that we wouldn't necessarily do in our day and age. Why would Joseph do this? Was he just being the crazy uncle? No. Why would he do this? What could he possibly have known? I promise you, he knew this. That God had promised his great-grandfather Abraham in Genesis 15. You can read it there. God had said to Abraham, Your offspring, Abraham, will be sojourners in a land not their own, and they will be servants there, afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and they shall come out with great possessions. I promise you, Joseph knew that. 
his great-grandfather had received those words. He knew God's covenant promise. He knew the gospel was coming. He didn't know in what form or shape it would take. His brothers had to know this stuff too. And it might have been that at that moment in their days, it was dawning on them the light of reality that God had told our great-grandfather this a long time ago, and now this is happening. We're in a land not our own. It's Egypt, but everything seems so good here. We've got food. Our brother's the governor of this land. We, we kind of have it good. Joseph, I think, knew more than that. He'd been there for 93 years. He knew that there were about 300 years yet to come for his family in this land not their own, years in which he would not live, and they would not be good ones. They would not. For three centuries, a Pharaoh would come who knew not Joseph and cared not for these people and put them to work. But with gospel faith, Joseph knew that God had future grace for Israel, and he believed it. He believed it, and he left his bones so that others would believe it too. And they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin, and there he lay for 300 years. Now, in Exodus 13, we read some of the conclusion of that. There you see that Moses, as they departed from Egypt, took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will come for you, and you shall carry up my bones. Moses took those bones with him. And then after 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua carried those bones into the promised land. Now, let me speculate for just a second. For 300 years, the bones of the governor of Egypt lay in a coffin. For 300 years, those bones were almost a sacramental reminder to the Israelites who were now slaves in Egypt. A sacramental reminder to them to see these bones and remember what God had promised It was as though through Joseph's bones he were speaking to his people and saying, Hey, brothers, sisters, are you tempted to settle in and enjoy this life here in Egypt? Remember, God will come to visit you. And when he does, carry up my bones because you're not staying here. Or, brothers and sisters, are you tempted to despair your life in Egypt? Remember. God will come to visit you, and when He does, carry up my bones. 1,500 years later, on the night before His death, Jesus gathered His disciples for the Last Supper. And they remembered that very exodus from Egypt. You have to wonder, the things they talked about around that table, we don't know all of what they talked about. Maybe they talked about Joseph and his bones and Moses carrying them out. And all that that meant for the people of Israel looking forward to future grace. And Jesus at that table gave to his disciples not his bones, but his body and his blood. Now, every time you come to this table, every time you come to this table together, you should ask yourself, am I tempted to settle in and enjoy life in this world as though this is all there is? Remember, that table tells you there's future grace to come. Or maybe, maybe you're tempted. You should ask yourself, am I tempted to cower back and to despair life in this world? It seems like such a lost cause. My own life is so frustrating. And even if my own life is not frustrating, there are Christians being killed around the world. 
Are you tempted to just, to just despair life in this world? When you come to this table, you have to remember there's future grace to come. Gospel faith will change your life, but it will also shape your death. It has to change your life. If it doesn't, it's not real. It has to reshape who you are. It must. It absolutely must. But death is not beyond its scope. Your death will matter, and you have a 100% chance of getting there. And when you die, gospel faith will shape the very end of who you are, which will be yet only the beginning of future grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us faith to believe. God, would you have mercy and cause us to recognize your covenant and your grace and the faith that you grant to us in and through Jesus, that we might walk in the strength of faith as you provide. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.